When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. Today's guest is bass guitarist Carl Alvarez from the Fort Collins, Colorado punk rock band Descendants. Together, we tackle the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the fan-favorite hit, I'm the one, taken from their 1996 album, Everything Sucks. Now, we've heard this a lot here on Krista Makes a Podcast, but one of the very first things that Carl said about this track is that it was written in about 20 minutes. Descendants' well-known roadie and stage manager, Daniel Bug Snow, had complained to Carl about his ongoing relationship struggles, and it wasn't long after that the idea for the song came. And who can't relate to the lyrics? Seeing someone you care about dearly continue to put vested interest in the wrong people. This song is a mere 2 minutes and 15 seconds. But there's not a speck of fat on the bone here. Every note, word, and feeling has its own spot and purpose. Drummer Bill Stevenson and guitarist Stefan Egerton produced and engineered this masterpiece. And Andy Wallace absolutely slayed the mix. 27 years later and the track doesn't sound dated at all. So for all this and a whole lot more, stick around. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Carl, how's it going? Pretty good, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing great. I I just saw you <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we, it was only uh, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah, we played uh, we played fest down in Gainesville together. It's always amazing to see you guys. You're ageless, just like less than Jake. Um, <clears throat> cough, cough. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, man, you know, you're the last one in Descendants uh, to be on the show. I've had every one of you guys and. I'm just so stoked to dive into I'm the One because, and uh, and my my top ten rotates, but I, I'm the One is probably always in there. It's one of my favorite Descendant songs. Just everything about it, and I want you to take us back now. You know, the record Everything Sucks was recorded uh, in June and July of '96. But do you remember writing the song? And was it something you had written for all, or was it specifically written in mind for Descendants? I don't know. I don't. We don't. I don't think we really think about which song's gonna go where. But I can tell you where that song kind of came from, which is there were a bunch of younger people that had a loft in downtown Fort Collins, and they'd throw shows there. And I went there, and on the bill that night was a 
Daniel Snow, Bug, our roadies band, Bill the Welder. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of, I came back and I had listened to Bug talk about his uh, lack of good luck with women that he was obsessed with. (laughs) And I sat on the couch and then there was a few other friends who had given me similar laments over the past uh, while there. And so I sat on the couch and I think that song wrote itself in like, seriously, like 20 minutes. Weird as that sounds. Really? Yeah. Okay. I just kind of sat down and wrote it and you know, there it is. Would this have been uh, between the Interscope All record and Everything Sucks somewhere in between there? Like was had that tour finished up the, the All Tour? I think we were already committed to the to the Descendants record. You were okay. To the Everything Sucks record. Okay, because this is well known, and I went back and listened to it. Uh, there's a demo with Chad singing on yeah. "I'm the One." You can you can find it on YouTube. And it's amazing, save for the beginning of the track, the intro is a little bit shorter. The rest of the song's identical. Uh, it's a little bit faster. It doesn't have as much groove. I think it's maybe a, maybe a click or two slower on the actual recording. So I thought maybe this was something that all was working up for the next record. You know what? If things had gone differently, it probably would have been. Like I said, I don't really think about it that much about who's going to sing it, you know. But I mean, once you get in the studio, almost anything can happen. And with that song, one of the things I remember happening is we changed the key of it to accommodate an easier singing of it, which was fine, except for from the bass end of it, it created a situation which was pretty easy and made it very difficult, where in that song, I will hit the lowest fretted note on the bass yeah. and the highest one in like this really limited amount of time. And that's purely a byproduct of changing the key of the song. <laughs> Ah. I think it was a half step lower before, and I was able to get away with an open note or something. But, ah. you know, I, I'm up for the challenge. It's like, okay, this is going to be really pointlessly difficult, but I'll do it. You know what? I've never thought about that, Carl. Have you ever, you know, dialed up a bass tone and you're like, you're playing this really low part. And it sounds great. And you want to go up to an octave way higher. And it's like, it sounds terrible up there. And you have to accommodate the sound from that. Yeah, of course. You got to pay attention to where you are relative to the guitar, too. You know, sure, sure. The Ramones were artists with that. They were, you know, if uh, Johnny was on the lower chords, Dee Dee would be okay to be on the middle mm-hmm. of the bass or even on the high sometimes, you know? Right. The song you said was was written very quickly, and I hear that a lot. It's always yeah. the most amazing songs. Yeah. Of course, this was picked as the first single. You guys did a video for this, but uh, <laughs> you, you wrote it. Do you remember presenting it to the band, and what did they think? I, I think they all they liked it okay. I think it was, you know, I mean, it's one of those ones where I think by then we'd been doing it long enough that it's like, okay, here's the new song. Let's do our, what we can with it. You know, we'll, we'll do it. And by the end of the recording, we'll see which songs sound outstanding. I don't, I don't remember an immediate reaction out of anybody, really. I thought it was just one in our wad of songs. In your mind, and, and I say this as an all-fan first, I was an all-fan before I, I discovered Descendants. I was backwards. And did you ever think during this time, maybe not, you probably didn't have time to think you guys had toured so much in all you're just writing songs. You're going to do a descendants record now. But did you think as you're writing this, like, man, this song's awesome. If we put this out on an all record, it's going to get the, the reaction and the traction that it gets. But if this goes on a descendants record, maybe some people are going to hear this thing. 
You know, descendants are always going to be a more popular phenomena, I think, for whatever it's worth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that the thought crosses your mind, but, you know, I certainly, I try not to think about it in those terms, well, at least particularly during the writing of songs, because you just want the songs to be natural, be what they are, mm-hmm. to be their own thing. And then, you know, when the other guys get in on it, maybe it gets a little more life. By the end of it, you have a fully ambulatory Frankenstein monster of a song walking around. Well, because I had mentioned to Stefan when he was on here, we talked about Everything Sucks, the the lone track that that he wrote from this record, which that whole story was crazy. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I just wrote this kind of yeah. throwaway song and ended up being the, the guys are like, it's going to be the first song of the record. He's like, are you kidding me? We've always been convincing Stefan that he's a, he's a better songwriter than he thinks he is. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the thing. Because you're an all fan, I can bring it up. The song Strip Bar. Okay. <laughs> all eight seconds of it. What you I went to the strip bar, tried to grab her by the world, but a big guy beat me up and threw me out the back door of the strip bar. That was him joking about, you know, well, what am I going to write in a song? And he just spilled that out and it was like, okay, well, we're going to put that on the record now. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we'll show you. You know, thanks for that. Well, no, but I mean, like, you know, you, you go back to that time period and, you know, and I think, I believe I mentioned this in his episode, there was no internet. You know, you, the best you could find out about a new record is you walked into a record store or you saw a flyer or someone told you to show, Hey, there's a new descendants record. But you know, my, my listeners know they've heard the story, but I, I, I was out on the road. His kid put us up in New York at his apartment and he had an advanced copy of everything sucks. And he popped that thing in and it was just I couldn't believe it because by that point, I, of course, was familiar with Descendants, but the last Descendants recordings I heard were what you guys did in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't equating it, even though it was the same band. I didn't know you guys yet. I didn't know the inner workings. So to me, it was a completely separate band. I heard this recording. It was like, oh my gosh, the mix with Andy Wallace. I mean, what do you still think of it today? It, it It sounds ripping. It's almost 30 years old. You know, I haven't listened to that one in a real long time. I got to tell you, you know, I don't, it's, this is going to sound really lame, but once you're done doing the song, and you know this because of your stuff, it's really rare that you'll go, oh, you know what? I really want to listen to what I did there, you know? Yeah. But still occasionally, you know, the odd record I I did or, you know, or misplayed on, I'll put it on and find out. But I I I haven't listened to that record. Maybe I owe it a re-listen. I probably should just to make sure I'm playing the parts right. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, going on the Caffeine Nation tour with you guys, I mean, you were really, to me, the first punk band. And and prior to that, I probably just wasn't paying attention. I was young. I was in the pit diving off. I wasn't paying attention to the musicianship of Seven Seconds or the Doughboys when I was seeing them at Janice Landing in St. Pete. By the time I got on the road with you guys, I sat there every night. and, And I can't stress enough what you guys taught us, me as a musician, about the importance of your craft. You know, I don't know of any band that practiced harder than you. I know when you guys moved to, what was it, Brookfield or Missouri? Brookfield, Missouri. You guys lived in some house. And when you were off the road home for two weeks, three weeks at a time, all you did is rehearse all day long. And that work ethic has has just, I'll never forget it. And it made me feel like, wow, you can be proficient and you can be good as a punk band. You don't have to suck. Well, you know, we had the examples of the Minutemen and Black Flag, and guys who clearly, whatever else you wanted to say about them, they weren't exactly slackers in the musician department. You know, they were very, very, very good. And I I feel like I can extend it to any number of bands from that era. But I think part of the beauty of the punk rock thing was it wasn't the important thing or smug. It wasn't like, look at me, I'm a bitching guitar player. 
It was more like, no, we got this cool band. We're going to, you know, all hunker down and do it. Right. Uh, also, the practice thing's funny to me because when you have your first band, you know, practice is the best thing that happens to you all day. <laughs> yeah. You know? And then somewhere in there, after bands put a record out and start doing touring, somehow practice, a lot of them, it becomes kind of a chore or something. And I try to hang on to that early stage vibe of like, oh, this is really cool. I get to go over it. Like, to this day, I go over to Bill's house, uh, typically 10 in the morning, and we practice for an hour, two hours and hang out and play records. And I, I get a lot of the same charge out of it I did when I was still, you know, 18, 19 years old going to my first practices with the massacre guys. Man, I, that's so refreshing to hear, Carl. I, I suffer from that. I have, a, and it's not that I don't like my guys in my band. I love them. I, I just, I yeah. suffer from that, that instinct, that guttural thing. You know, you know, when you, you yeah, that, that those first, that's all you thought about all day long. You got in the rehearsal. We'd be in there for nine, 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing is, is to keep it fun. You know, you have to fuck up your own songs. You have to, <laughs> you know, come up with, you know, ways to make it fun for yourself. It's, and we do, you know. Yeah. Bill and I spend a lot of time these days going down YouTube rabbit holes of uh, different music and different people and artists that we might have in common or we don't even. And, you know, we'll spend an hour or two going through that and then go back to it. You know, and, and I know from watching you guys and, and I, I got one last question before we, we jump into the track. I have to ask. and I've never never asked a band this. Uh, you guys are amazingly proficient. Stefan's probably my favorite punk rock, if not the best punk rock guitarist, in my opinion, uh, hit for his style. Uh, Bill is just a monster. You're, you're in your own league as a bass player. Ask anybody. Do you think that you'd be as good Carl Alvarez in 2023 if you weren't hanging around with Bill and Stefan all these years? Because I know you guys have elevated each other. You know, I had a, about Two years in there, after Stefan had quit the Massacre guys and moved to Washington, D.C., before I joined up with Descendants, and I kept playing, but I think the learning curve was much steeper with Bill and with Stefan, both of them in the band, you mm -hmm. know? So I played with some very, very good players in Salt Lake City of all sorts of styles of music, but just that thing, Stefan just kept writing more and more difficult music. Yeah, You know, that was a habit he had and it forced me to get on board. Okay, well, I got to learn how to make this thing work. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Bill, well, I mean, you know, it's one of those things, hanging on for dear life is not really, that's not too <laughs> inaccurate of a way to put it when I joined the band. It's like, God, I hope I can, simply this, I hope I can play fast enough yeah. to play with this guy. Right. You know? Right. I mean, the first time I saw uh, all play, uh, it was the first time I saw the, the three of you together. Uh, I, I swore Stefan had like some weird arthritic condition. His fingers were spread apart. He was playing these chords. I'm like, those aren't real chords. I think he was making up half of them. I'm like, this guy is next level. <laughs> He's discovered his dirty secret. Actually, there's quite a bit of Stefan invents a chord going on in our background. <laughs> but also, you know, before the punk rock world even existed, Stefan was already a very, very competent guitar player. He was when I met him at age 12, and he got respect from adults, which was weird. And he'd go out on the corner, and he'd busk, he'd play Hotel California, or whatever it was, and because at the time he was very, very small, people would just throw money at him. And I remember <laughs> going out and watching him busk and thinking, hmm, there's something in this music thing. This guy's, you know, got enough money to go raid the candy store with, you know? It was kind of rad. 
So he always had that in him. Uh, but the music before punk rock was a thing. For him, there was a lot of Frank Zappa, a lot of jazz music that I was completely unfamiliar with. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the rock and roll of the 70s that you would expect, you know, Boston, Ted Nugent, stuff of that ilk was in there. But, you know, he had a whole different angle on how to work chords in from a very, very early point, I think. He liked the sound of them, you know. Yeah, how he's able to blend the dissonance with the with yeah. the pop sensibility. It's it, the the fine line that he walks is, is beautiful. Well, when we I started playing bass for real when I, I joined his band, we would sit in the living room of our basement punk rock drag apartment, and we would try to deliberately find the most dissonant note combinations between the bass and the guitar. <laughs> our reasoning was. <laughs> <laughs> if we can find where all the sour notes are, then it's one short step to knowing where all the right notes are. <laughs> so yeah. We were kind of backwards. I was going to say, you, got, you, know. you guys were going in reverse. But we liked all that dissonant stuff, you know, and I, I worked at a library for a long time and I used to bring home records that were interesting. And there was a classical composer named Bela Bartok and a lot of his stuff has that same dissonant kind of tonality to it. But being punk rockers... His records took too long, so we put him on 45. <laughs> Sped him up. You know, just to, so we can get him out of the way. So maybe, yeah, Bella Bartok on 45 is part of Stefan's thing. Maybe not. I love it. Well, the song is two minutes and 15 seconds, which this seems like a, not like it's lengthy and it, it, it feels like it's too long, but it feels more like a three or four minute song. It feels like a really complete tune. Two minutes and 15 seconds. We got an eight bar intro. There's a steady kick drum going right off the top. Stereo guitars are ringing out these big chords along with that kick drum. There's a steady hi-hat, a killer Bill Stevenson, Tom Phil uh, happening and an amazing melodic bass part with these harmonics that you're doing there at the top. Uh, really yeah. cool. Do you recall um, when you went to record this, was the harmonic part already there? I can't remember if it was on the demo or not. Or I think it kind of came in later. I, I think that, that, that little high bit came in as we kept working on the song. And, you know, Bill is always very um, encouraging in terms of like, okay, we need something here. Put something here. We need the bass to do something here. And, you know, we'll sit around and mess around and invent a thing to fill the space, you know, or whatever it is that sounds cool to us and move on. You know, the on the uh, Hypercafium record, Bill and me did all the bass parts in his back bedroom at his house. And, you know, it was just kind of us hanging out coming up with cool bass parts for two weeks. Cause I really didn't have anything going into that. I had songs, but no real bass parts. Have you ever been in rehearsal? I've done this and you're playing this cool harmonic part and you love it. No one's really says anything about it. And you go to record it and you do it. And they're like, dude, what is that? Or I, I don't like that. And you're like, you're crushed. You're like, that's my part. Yeah. I've been doing it the whole time, man. Yeah. What's what up? Yeah, like you, you could have said yeah. something three weeks ago and told me it sucked then, and now, like, I love it. Uh, that's a hard one to swallow. I've had that happen. Well, we kind of had a rule at a certain point where you're not allowed to tell a fellow band member that their part sucks unless you have a better idea. 
I like that. Because it's at that level, it's just counterproductive, right? Right. Well, okay, I know what you don't want to hear. What do you want to hear there? But what if you don't know what you want to hear? You just know what you hear sucks. Then let us <laughs> let us dialogue and come up with something that the both of us can live with. You yeah, know? yeah, for it's sure. A, you know, or sometimes a random person might have a better idea too. You know, because that's part of what we liked about our having our roadie Daniel around for a lot of years was he was a really good. Uh, you know, he could bring things down to base level pretty quick. You know, yeah. Being as his his whole template of music was. The Ramones, ACDC, and Black Sabbath, and everything else is just pretend stuff. Right, and, and sometimes that's all it takes. You'll have a, a second engineer in a studio, and he's going to get a sandwich, and as he's walking out, he's he's singing the song, but he sings a wrong lyric. You're like, whoa, what was that? Well, that, that's actually kind of yeah, cool. that's actually better. Let's go yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah, we had a, when we did the Descendants All Record, and uh, some of the All Records, there was a guy named Richard Andrews on who was in the production of it, and he was a much better bass player than I am. And there's stuff on those recordings where he was literally, you know, giving me ideas, telling me what he thinks should go there, knowing that I was very uneducated and very green. But he was, you know, he was a guy who, this music was not his music. He was a contemporary R&B guy. That's what he liked. But he gave me, you know, he'd give me ideas and point out little places I could put things in. He was a very talented guy. Sounds you like know? you were you were receptive to it though. You were open to it. Well, yeah, because I'd only been playing bass for like four or five years at that point, so I needed help. Yeah, but you were young, and a lot of kids know everything, and they don't they don't want to hear it. I've seen that so many times in studios, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it's that's a real thing because you do. It's hard work to learn how to even make the things make anything other than noise. You yeah. know, <laughs> it's yeah, it's hard. And so when you get in the studio, also, I feel like in studio, it's a very vulnerable place for a lot of musicians to be. Oh yeah, because everything's really naked in there, you know. Mm -hmm. And now, now you're under a microscope, and it's only you in the vocal booth. Yeah, and so <laughs> the defensiveness—I understand where one would get defensive, and I've had to be defensive about certain stuff here and there. Sometimes to my detriment, you know, it's like, no, no, we need to keep that third or the fourth verse in, or whatever. So I can listen to it again a couple of years later, and you're like, no, yeah, I could have lived without that fourth verse. Oh well, yeah, I should have listened to someone. And, and that's hard to do because, you know, when you're in the moment, that's a snapshot of where you were right then. I try to remember that yeah. too, you know? Oh, yeah. Right out of uh, the intro, eight bar intro, we get chorus one. I'm the one. I've been here for you all along. I'm the one whose shoulder you've been crying on. We get harmonies on both I'm the Ones there. And I gotta ask, later in the song, I swear it's Chad, and I know uh, Chad Price uh, has been credited with backing vocals on Everything Sucks, but is that you doing the harmonies on I'm the One? You know, I couldn't even tell you nowadays. I can't okay. even remember who <laughs> ended up doing that. That was, you know, it's a long time ago. And also, you know, like you said, Chad, honestly, he's a much, much better singer than I am. So if we want to get stuff done quickly in studio, you call Chad. It'll be done very quickly. Well, and, and I wanted to ask, you know, obviously Chad can sing. He's absolutely amazing. One of my, one of my favorite singers. Yeah. But does his voice, it's kind of in the same timbre as Milo's, kind of gruff. Does it mix a little bit better than yours? And maybe that's why he was doing some backing vocals or was it just because he gets in there and kills it? <laughs> you know, I think maybe. But the weird thing about Chad and me is our voices at one point with the all stuff, 
would do a weird thing in studio where their interaction, something between the gruff I had and the gruff he had, would create a third harmonic part. Yeah. That would drive the you know Bill and Hampton crazy trying to hunt down where that strange note is coming from. Right. It was just between our voices. So I don't know. Bill has a big part in the harmonies when we do this stuff because mm-hmm. he's got a real gift, I feel like, for it. Yes. And so, you know, yeah, I think it ultimately would have come down to his call. And I'm having a hard time telling it. Were these vocals double track, the lead vocal? If they were, I can't tell. I think most of the lead vocal tends to be double tracked with us, but a lot of attention is paid to making it perfectly in line to sing it perfectly in line and not staggered. So there's no, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't read that way. It just sounds like a real loud bitch in vocal. Yeah. Well, it's like that uh, scene in filmage when, when Scott, the second all singer basically gets up there and says, yeah, I did. I sang, she's my ex perfectly. And I get done with it. And Bill's like, Hey, go back in there and sing it again. He's like, what do you mean? Now we need double. Yeah. Yeah. Now we need double it. And maybe that's the case here. If it is, it's a tight double right out of the chorus. We go straight into verse one. Nice guys finish last. No one knows as good as me. We're just good friends. And you come to me for sympathy. And is this basically what you were, you were sharing earlier about, you know, your friends coming to you? I was sharing earlier about a lot of the, a lot of the guys I knew had this thing where the girl in question that they're interested in is clearly not interested in them and is dating other guys who are maybe not the best of people for them to be dating. You know, it's, it's all part of, I guess this is all standard girl versus boy stuff. I think, you know, this is ancient (laughs) when you're talking about this stuff, the uh, unrequited love factor, Cyrano, you know, yeah, it's all in there. Well, the first two lines, Bill goes to a Tom shuffle beat while the vocals are happening. Then the band plays straight uh, in between. And then we're going to get into what I'm calling the pre-chorus. Uh, the chord uh, yeah. progression changes here. You tell me that I'm not so tired, but still you call me late at night. Every time he picks the fight, after all he's said and all he's done. You tell me that I'm not your type. But still you call me late at night, every time he picks a fight, after all he's said and all he's done. I mean, who can't relate to those lyrics, though? And I've had that happen. I, there, there, I had plenty of, of female friends, some of whom, you know, I kind of had a liking to. I was like, why are you hanging out with this guy? He's terrible. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the time, the idea of being a friend to a woman is confusing for both people involved. I think a lot of the time in that sort of scenario, the woman doesn't necessarily know there is romantic interest or the guy doesn't know how to express that there is romantic interest. And it can be very confusing or maybe there's nothing there. You know, Mm -hmm. in this case of this song, clearly this guy believes that our narrator Milo believes that like, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that ultimately when you're done messing around, you're going to find me because I've been here the whole time. I gave her everything I've got, she don't care. Hey everyone, don't go anywhere. We got lots more coming up with Carl Alvarez after a few words from our sponsors. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Chris to Makes a Podcast producer, Chris Fafalius. Will you do me a favor real quick? Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to One Hit Thunder. It's the show that I host with my good buddy, Matt Kelly, where we have guests from the world of music and comedy and art, and together we dive deep into a band or artist that people consider a one-hit wonder and decide if they brought the thunder or were just a blunder. You'll laugh, you'll learn, maybe you'll get mad at us, who knows? We have an enormous back catalog that includes episodes about Eagle Eye Cherry, Stacy Q, Looking Glass, The Weather Girls, Tag Team, Four Non Blondes, Martika, Creation, Sixpence None the Richer. I could go on and on. But how about you just subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods and experience the fun for yourself? No, she don't. Ten years before. And now, back to the show. Something about this track, I can't see this on any other Descendants record prior to Everything Sucks. The musicianship, everything about you you guys had, to me, just, it's a different animal at this point. However, this lyric could sit in on a number of those records, I feel. Yeah, probably. It could sit in on the on all of the Descendants. I mean, that, like I said, the Unrequited Love song thing, I mean, that's the song Hope is very much that. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, there's quite a bit of that in the early catalog, but... You know, romance is romance, you know. In the current era, it's kind of, you know, I've had people express the opinion that both those songs are a bit stalkery or weird. And, I, and I'm kind of like, well, okay, well, we have a song called Stalker if you want the song about being a stalker. <laughs> These aren't that. Yeah. You actually have the song about that. Yeah, we wrote that already. So you can, if you want to complain about that, you can complain about that. Right, right. These ones are, you know, romantic obsession songs well in pre-chorus one bill goes to the ride here along with that classic surf rock motown double snare thing that he does Uh, and again i'm calling this pre-chorus one because the chord progression uh does change here at the very last line after all he's said and all he's done which we hear that line a number of times in the song that line to me is a hook that has to be here especially later in the song when it when it just perfectly uh bridges the gap between the bridge and chorus four later on but i love this is such a, a descendants all ism here at the very end where the bass hits with the guitars and the drums the one two three four five six seven do you know when you're going up to yeah yeah yeah, yeah, the yeah. High, it, it's just so good it's on the demo that part was that yeah. something that you remember working out in the studio or that's, you just did it? I don't, you know, I don't know about that. I mean, for me, the roots of the song are kind of in the way the changes work. And there's a lot of weird half step changes through the mm, whole yes. song. Yeah. That are a little untypical for this genre or for any of them. But that, I think kind of how that, that bit leading up to the chorus, I honestly feel like that's kind of Roy Orbison or something. It's just this, uh, if you put it in your head, you can hear Roy Orbison singing that melody as it, you know, as the bit ascends, you know? Wow. That's a crazy example. I never thought in a million years I I would hear that or reference that to think about that in context of this song. But yeah, I could hear him singing that, uh, how you go up there, those steps. Well, there's there's a a lot of oldies bullshit in what I do. 
I can't speak for the other guys. I know with Bill, the Beach Boys have always been a big part of his world. Oh, yeah. So, and with Stefan, big Beatles fan. And I, you know, I've, I, we all were raised with that radio when we were young and all that. Like, what was the first song you remember, you really remember as a kid that affected you? Um, Free Ride by Edward, Edgar Winter Group. That's a good one. That's yeah. a really good one. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was younger, but I remember distinctly sitting at my grandma's breakfast table and, you know, listening to the radio. And I remember uh, the song, the Motown song, The Temps, I Can't Help Myself. Oh, yeah. And there was something about that song I really liked. And then it was followed up by Help Me Rhonda by the Beach Boys. And something about those two things just kind of, I think everything comes from that moment of like liking the way that that felt <sighs> to hear that stuff. I can relate to that because I'm a sucker to this day for the dual harmony guitar that Boston and Iron Maiden and all these guys oh, yeah. and that 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 stems straight from Edgar Winter Group. They were they were doing that. See, that's the only reason you guys should ever have a second guitar. <laughs> exactly, you I know. Do the tandem guitar parts. <laughs> well, we got a frustrated guitarist. He plays bass, Roger. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I know that. I know that story. Well, but, you play bass sometimes nowadays, right? Yeah, I got one sitting right here, but I I'm, I'm not that good. But uh, coming out of pre-chorus one, Carl, we get another chorus. We got the same lyric, but I did notice, and I've never noticed this, uh, the last line uh, at the very top of the song, it says, whose shoulder you've been crying on. But here it says the shoulder you've been crying on. Do you, hmm. rec do you recall that happening? Or was I, might have, I probably had a specific reason to do that, but uh, I'll be fucked if I can tell you what it is. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I'm sure there was some small argument in the studio over which word was going there or whatever. Do you know, know, a lot of time we as singers, we just screw up and we say that yeah. instead of whose shoulder, we just said the. It might have been that. It ended up. It might have been that. It ended up being a take. A lot of times, I've found out, and I didn't know this, especially when we were going analog back in the day. Mixers sometimes had the liberty to pull up another piece of tape or pull up something like, "Wait, what? What is this?" And like they would put that in there and be like, "That's the take," and you'd hear it and be like, "Wait a second, the lyric is whose? It's not. <laughs> it's not." Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But you know, because they're not necessarily paying attention to the lyric when they're doing a tape edit. They're sure. Just like, yeah, know, that's not. We're just trying to make sure that we actually can get. It to line up properly so yeah. it isn't a dog's dinner you know well who who knows there uh, again we get harmonies on i'm the one both times we're right in to verse two he's a total dick that's a true thing you know i'm right from everything you say it is the way i'll ever do you right he's a total dick that's the truth and you know i'm right <laughs> From everything you say, there's no way he'll ever do you right. Someone in there was trying to like get a rise out of me. Like, are you really going to use he's a total dick as the lead in line? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, oh, yeah, hell yeah. Well, a lot of it, this is how people speak. It's not like I'm coming up with something 
I'm being staggeringly creative here. All, I, all I'm doing is this is how people talk. I can't tell you how many times I feel like I'm talking to, to Skiba. Another one is, is, is Brennan from Lawrence Arms. Some of their lyrics, that's exactly how they talk, that Midwestern, you yeah. know, kind of cockiness. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, I, so yeah, I, I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? Yeah, I get it from that aspect. Uh, verse two here, same general instrumentation as verse one, but man, your bass playing gets really playful on the back half here. And I got to ask you, and it's awesome. Do you have a lot of liberty with yourself to play around or do you usually get it in the first take? Or two? Well, I usually have a rough idea of what I'm doing, but it'll take me a while to get it perfected. Yeah. Usually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, the main rule, of course, is just stay out of the way of the of everyone else. If you're going to be pulling off all these yeah. bass things, you know, you can't, you don't, don't want to step on anyone's dick, particularly the vocal melody. You don't want to distract from that. Sure. So, you know, it's stuff to keep in mind when you're getting inventive or uppity on bass, you know. It's really difficult to do when you're in a punk rock band and your tempos are what they are most of the time. There's oh, yeah. a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff on top of each other. Oh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes it gets down to appropriate stuff because when I was with the real McKenzie's, Little Joe Raposo had been their bass player before me. Oh, wow. And we all know what Little Joe does. And, you know, he's a bruiser. But I got in there and I sized it up. It's like, hmm, we have three guitar players and two bagpipe players someone's got to take the low road on this stuff. (laughs) So I simplified a bunch of Joe's parts for the sake of this, of being out of the way of the, the pipers and the guitar players. And man, that, that is so cool though, Carl, because you know, Again, maybe you could have. You, you seem like you've kind of been a little more mature in, in your years, even as a younger musician. But a lot of younger guys can't see see the forest through the trees, so to speak. And, and like, hey, I gotta, I know my place here. I, I gotta stay back. You've seen those show off drummers that just can't help themselves. Yeah, yeah. You see it in like virtually all all instruments. You'll see that element in them. But I think that's the mark. I mean, a lot of music is very cooperative. You know, you have to. Listen to the people, like I said before, you listen to the people around you and you don't want to step on anyone's toes yeah. particularly, you know, make something stronger. The gestalt has to add up or whatever. And yeah, no, it's, but you know, like you said, it's maybe it is a mature thing or maybe it's a, uh, a lot of team sports as a kid or something. I just always had that instinct. I've said that before. I don't know how many times on this show. I feel like some of the musicians, uh, myself included, that have been coached in sports, it's helped me uh, accept the producer's role, accept the, you know, somebody yeah. uh, kind of being a, a coach, the, the the fifth member of the yeah. band. And it's helped me in, to look at it that way because there's some guys that didn't play sports or just, they froze when they got in that situation. It's like, wait, someone's telling me what to do? Wait, this is new. Yeah, I've, no one's ever done that before. Right? Yeah, yeah. Also, I did theater productions in high school like everyone else. You know, having a director was not alien, you know. That's really insightful. Well, pre-chorus too. You love a man who treats you wrong. You think you'll change him, but you're wrong. He'll use you, then he'll say so long. After all he's said and all he's done. So the last line here is the tie-up. We get that again. How, yeah. how important was yeah. that to, to get that line in there? Was there ever a different line or was that what it had to no, be? No, that was it. That was the callback to make it all kind of yeah. be symmetrical and line up and make progressive sense. Yeah. You know? I never realized yeah. how important that line was to this song. And I've heard this song, I'm not even going to say hundreds of times. I've heard this song probably thousands of times. How important 
and relevant that line is to this song. That really ties it up right there. I, I if you would have asked me uh, two days ago, I'd just say, "No, it's I'm the one. I've been here." You know that that's the lyric. Yeah. No, this is this is really it to me. After all he's said and all he's done, you know, you're not going to see. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm I'm standing here. And that's a, yeah, that's where the you get your knight in shining armor moment or whatever out of it. I guess. I yeah. Well, chorus three and and listen, I haven't mentioned this. There's no fat on this at all there's no fat on this bone i mean this is just two minutes and 15 seconds we're into chorus three we get the harmonies on i'm the one on the first and third line and it says the shoulder you've been crying on before we hit the bridge here I love this bridge. Uh, it, it, it's perfect. Not only does it uh, get tied together here at the end with that with that lyric that we've been talking about, after all I've said and all I've done, but at the top of the bridge, you get the lyric, I'm the one that starts it off. I'm the one who wants you more than anything. You don't feel the same way. You made it clear to me, but I'll stand my ground and maybe you'll hear what I've been saying after all I've said and all I've done. So the lyric does change there to uh, first person after all I've said and all I've done versus all he said and all he's done. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's deliberate. It's, you know, yeah. you got to make it make sense on some level and give it a narrative sensibility. It's the, or just the, the juxtaposition, what he's, what's he saying and he, him doing, what am I saying? What am I doing? Was that lyric always the same? And again, I can't recall from the demo. I just listened to the demo yeah, this morning. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that one was. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that one was always there. I think for context, it has to be. On the second line, Carl, uh, I'm the one who wants you more than anything. On than anything, there's a harmony. And on the fourth line, clear to me, there's a harmony. And I swear that's Chad there for sure. I'd have to listen and find out. I don't think so, though. I think those are me. Those are if you. If I remember. <laughs> Maybe I, I have it backwards then. I'm okay. not sure. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure, though. I mean, yeah. Once again, once it's once it's in the can, so to speak, I you know we tend to, I don't know. It's like COVID. You know, it goes down the memory hole. You there, forget there, about uh, <laughs> what has happened. There you, you know? go. Well, the last line here, that lyric, it's such a hook. It perfectly ties this bridge together to launch chorus four. Chorus four is the first and only double chorus of the song. I'm the ones are all harmonized and we end on I'm the one at the very end where the band ends abruptly. And uh, the the two lines here, uh, the shoulder you've been crying on, it's not uh, whose shoulder like the very first chorus. So all the rest of them uh, were the, and I know this record was not done to Pro Tools, so nothing was flown around here. So that was, that was definitely deliberate. Yeah. yeah. Unless it was a tape edit, and I'm not aware of it. Okay. okay. You know, that's, like you said, that was your only option back then, and sometimes it led to funny results. Sure. You know? Now, you did, when you did the Pummel record, 
And I'm trying to, did you guys mix that yourself or who mixed the Pummel album? When we did that, we had, uh, trying to remember the fellow's name, one of the guys who'd done Appetite for Destruction, believe it or not. Okay, was it Mike Clink? No, no, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. It's not coming to me right now, but he came in. We had to fire him once or twice on the way to finishing the record. This was, you know, a major label record and they wanted to have their guy in there, but I think Bill managed to browbeat and get most of what we wanted out of the record out of this guy. I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's always weird. That was the first time we had really worked with someone in that capacity, you know? We had never done that. The reason I ask, I mean, Pummel to me when that came out, that was the the best sounding record uh, that that you guys had done up to that point. Descendants and all, uh, in fact, probably one of my favorite guitar tones on any record Stefan's ever done. Something really special on that record to me. Yeah, and we had a, the budget for it too. You know, that was a lot of it. Right. You know, that was the budget to make a good record. But, you but, know, but when I heard everything sucks, this was there was a. Uh, an energy here and an urgency that just, I mean, it comes screaming out of the speakers. And I, I was driving last night and I'll always do this before I do an episode, I'll get in my car where I know how my music sounds as we all do. And I crank this song up last night. I'm going to the grocery store and every hair in my neck standing up. Next thing I know I'm doing a, doing 65 and a 45. I got to calm down. It just, it sounds like a truck coming at you. Do you remember getting the mix back? What'd you think? I, I was very, very, very enthusiastic about it. I remember that. But, you know, back to what you were saying before, it's not I, – I think a lot of people do this. We uh, go for the car listen. Like when you get a mix in the old <laughs> days, it would be on a cassette. Yeah. You take it out to the car, preferably one with a pretty shitty stereo, you know, because you can't guarantee everyone's going to be listening to this on state-of-the-art stuff. No. And if you can get through the shitty stereo, then you've probably done a pretty good job. <laughs> but the car listen was a big part of it. Yeah, you know, the process of it. Because I'm telling you, even I mean this this by all accounts was a major label record. I mean you had Andy Wallace mix it, and by this point, Bill and Stefan knew how to engineer as as good as any of these guys. They had out there. learned. They had learned a lot. They yeah. had. I mean, go back a, a, a short six, seven years, listen to the, you know, home again by the Doughboys just doesn't sound, I mean, you know, a lot of that has to do with the band too, but I mean, where these guys came oh, in. No, no, no. It's like with the production with Bill and Stefan, they will be the first to admit they learned as they went. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know what I mean? And they learned from the people they worked around and with Bill that starts with black flag and, or it starts with spot actually who passed on last year. And then when they were working black flag, he was trying to learn during that period and then so on and so forth. Stefan got in the picture and he has his own production ideas and ethoses and they started producing other people's records in LA and it was all towards the good in terms of learning. Though I do think the Chemical People soundtracks record is probably my favorite of that era. Yeah, let's give a shout out to Chemical People. Love love that band. So underrated. Such a great band. A lot of those bands you guys ran with back then, Big Drill Car, Doughboys, absolutely loved it. Oh, every time I hear Drill Car, I'm just it's just uh yeah, it's just a great feeling cuz I remember just how good they were. They were such a great band live. And the recording's just, it's like a cool breeze, you know? It's, <laughs> I know. It's just, it's wonderful stuff. Yeah, I know. You know? Well, I, you know, let's go back now. You did the first Caffeine Nation tour. That would have been the fall of 96, early 97. I know Suicide Machines were out with you guys on that. I think Shades Apart. Do you remember 
This is going back a few years here, but do you remember playing I'm the One? And you remember the crowd reaction. And the reason I ask, you know, when we put out new records now, Carl, any band, I don't care if it's the Rolling Stones, Metallica, you know, people have those memories attached to those old songs. It's hard to get into the new stuff. I swear to you, when Everything Sucks came out, it was like a Greatest Hits Descendants record. I don't remember. I remember the fans just taking to it right away. Was that your perception of it? Yeah, that that was, I thought that was... I, I mean, it's, I thought it was pretty unusual, you know, because we'd, you know, Descendants, even as Descendants, have faced that because the Descendants All album was quite a departure from yeah. what the Enjoy album was all about. And the Enjoy album certainly is a departure from what Grow Up is about. Yeah. You know, so we had already met Backlash to the point of when I remember notably playing on the Descendants All album on tour someone literally yelling up your new song suck <laughs> while we were playing. Jeez. So, you know, it takes a while. So I was surprised that the everything sucks album was, you know, so uniformly embraced as, you know, the thing. Well, you didn't put out a crappy record. I'll tell you that. And that had a lot to do and, with it. And we got Frank to put a song on it and we got Tony. Mm-hmm. So, and the, and it was very important. It is very important to me that the guys who contributed get their due. Cause I'm I'm like the fourth bass player in this band, dude. I know, you know. I know. There's a lot of heritage there. No, and I've always you loved know? that you've respected the lineage of the band. All of you guys have, you know, like the the, oh, yeah. the ninth and Walnut Project. I mean, you were able to to step back and and for the betterment of the team. That's that's such a man. There's not a, again. There's not a lot of bands that can then separate the egos and and all that. Tony, you know, I was like every other kid in 1983 when Milo goes to college came out. I put that record on and I. I did not. Don't think it left the turntable for like three months. So we were obsessed with that thing. Yeah, you know, because well, it was so out of the blue because we had heard the you know the fatty P, we had heard that, and Milo goes to college was another you know light years ahead in terms of the evolution. So it it kind of caught us napping. Like what is the hell? What the hell is this thing? Right. Oh my god! This is the best record. It used to annoy quite a few of our friends because we were into that record. I bet. As much as we were. Well, listen, Carl, I could I could talk to you about what we're talking about right now for like three hours. But hey, I want to thank you for, for taking the time. I know you've been busy. And before we break here, what do you got for everyone listening? What's coming up with uh, Descendants? You got any solo stuff? Uh, what, any any all records coming out? I didn't even ask you guys this last time. I ask you every time. Oh, I God. I, you know, it's, I, with the all records, I don't even know. <laughs> We've been promising one for years, and I'm certainly into it. But uh, no formal plans have been made. The New Descendants record, Stefan and Milo have recorded their songs. Their songs are in the can. Bill and I are being the stick in the muds. Oh, my gosh. So maybe while I'm home for the next three or four months, I'll actually be able to demo my new bunch of songs and try to see what I can get out of that. And Bill can demo his. We just haven't done it. We've been very lazy about it. Right on, man. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, this was as as much fun for me as, as everybody listening, I'm sure. We did it. We had all the descendants on Chris to make a podcast. Now, if you haven't heard the past episodes, we have two episodes with Bill, an episode with Stefan, an episode with Milo. We got an episode with Chad Price. Just take a look back through our back catalog if you haven't heard those episodes yet. But don't do that yet. There's still more Krista Makes a Podcast to come right after a few words from our sponsors. 
Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Headways, a pop-punk band from Pennsylvania, featuring Cameron on lead vocals, Dan on guitar, Dylan on the drums, and Sean on the bass. You can find them on Instagram at Headways Music. Here's a snippet of their song, Ghost. The Rap with Chris and Chris. Chris, we did it. We got all the descendants. All all four. And man, we uh, we had to chase Carl down for a little bit. Uh, th- thankfully, his <laughs> wife uh, intervened. Uh, thanks, Jen. Well worth the wait. Because I don't know from your perspective if you think this, Chris, but I know from my world, I'm the one is probably the signature descendant song in my world. If you would ask anyone that I roll with what the most popular descendant song is, they'd probably say I'm the one. Do you agree with that? I do. And it's, I had a really funny conversation with Bill uh, two weeks ago when we played Fest about that because they played, they, they repeated a couple songs, but they had did a Fest warm-up show on the Thursday before Fest. And I was in town early and me and the guys went down to see him play. And it was just hit after hit after hit. And I had jokingly said to him the next day, I said, well, what are you going to play tonight? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, last night was hit after hit. he goes, you think last night was hits? I'm like, yeah, you played hope. You played. I'm the one. He goes, I'm the one's a hit. He goes, well, I guess to you, cause you weren't really into us back in the eighties. You were too young. So I'm, I'm the one's like a new song to you. I'm like, I wouldn't say it's new bill. It's almost 30 years old, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I knew what he, I knew what he meant by it. It made, it, it made me chuckle. But as I said to Carl, Chris, Top 10 Descendants song that never goes out of the top 10. My top 10 does rotate with Descendants, but uh, I'm the one's always there. It's a staple. Yeah, it's amazing. And I thought it was really cool that Carl was talking about how he's still able to maintain the excitement and fun of band practice and have it not be a chore. Because I'll tell you what, man, I try to be that way. I'll tell you this. Once I'm there and I'm playing, I'm having fun. But kind of sometimes you're like, oh, I got to drive to band practice. I got to lug in my equipment. I got to do this stuff. And yeah, it can turn into a chore. And that was inspiring to me when he said that. I I thought to myself, I have to make sure band practice is always fun. I never want to think of it that way. Yeah, and and I I definitely uh, took a little bit uh, took a page out of that too. I was like, man, I gotta I gotta come up with some excitement because and I think a lot of it, Chris, is band practice was such a new thing then. It was either band practice or your crappy job that you had, or 
for me, it was the college classes that I didn't want to go to. So practice was just like this, this Mecca, like let's get to practice. Whereas nowadays, you know, we've gotten older, we have families and all this other stuff that, that uh, detracts you away from that. But I'm going to try to remember that next time I walk into rehearsal. I do remember the days after school or whatever. And I knew I had band practice that night and being like, oh, hell yeah, we got band practice tonight. I want to try to get more in that mindset nowadays. I think that would be cool. Yep. Uh, I thought it was a good point you brought up about saying that the people you play with elevate you. Mm-hmm. You know, for Carl getting, to, well, I'm sure he elevates them too. They're all, as you would say, they're all rippers. Yeah. So I'm sure they all elevate each other. But who you play with can make you such a better musician. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the old adage, it's so true, the company you keep. You know, if you want to be a, yeah. a, a hairstylist and, and, and you're hanging around the disco every night, you're probably not going to be that good. But if you're at the salon every day, and it's the same thing here, if you're hanging around people of your caliber or better, um, you're going to improve if you if you stick around long enough. And and those guys, they just they just keep getting better. Bill's doing a thing now, Chris, because he's gone to in ears, and so he he'll wear in ear monitors, but he'll also wear noise canceling headphones on the outside of it. So he's com- almost completely isolated back there, and he's hitting. Actually, he's not hitting. He's he's missing like hi hat parts and cymbal parts. When I say he's missing them, he's deliberately leaving them out as to not crowd a part. I I can't even explain it. But I'm I talk to him about this, and it's almost like he's playing lighter and he's playing more like a jazz drummer. And he agreed with me on all fronts. And he said, "Yeah, it's these in ears." He goes, "I'm hearing things." He's like, "Why do I have to hit the cymbal there coming back into it when it doesn't need to be? Let the guitars and the bass do that." And I'm sitting there going, "My gosh." This guy's still learning after 40 years of doing this. How how inspirational. Yes, that definitely is. And that relates right to what you were talking to Carl about when you were saying, well, he was saying anyway, that as a bassist, it's important not to step on everything else in the mix, not to overplay. You don't want to be playing some crazy bass line and overpowering the vocal or the guitar or something. You have to be tasteful about what you play and... I think that's, we've talked about that before in the rap and on the after party and stuff that you see, especially sometimes in young bands, usually with inexperience, you see people overplaying. Oh gosh. And it just, it sounds bad. Even Mm -hmm. if what you're playing is technically difficult and technically musically proficient or whatever, it can sound terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen I've seen bands where the the kid like you know you can tell Travis Barker's his favorite drummer. He's just doing a fill oh, every yeah. you know every couple oh, of bars, and it's just like yeah, you just you gotta you <laughs> you gotta give the other uh, people in your room or band some room here, kid. It's 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 not working. Travis Barker is obviously an amazing drummer, but he has uh, he is responsible for thousands of drummers that dress like him and try to unsuccessfully play like him in in local bands for decades after. Yes. Thanks a lot, Travis. <laughs> uh, also, I wanted to bring up from this episode, Chris, I love the he's a total dick line. Yeah. If it was he's a total jerk or he's a total Dweeb. whatever, it w- <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have the same effect. That is a perfect line, and I don't feel like the song would be the same song without it. It wouldn't. And Carl said it perfectly. It's just like we'd sit around talking. You're you're hanging out with your buddies, like you know, or somebody. He's a total dick. And that's how you'd talk. And right. And I like that. And um, I, I like when that comes across in song. I never really thought about that lyric. I never knew he got any grief for it being corny or whatever. I think it's awesome. Yeah. 
And I love the rule that they have about you can't say something sucks <laughs> unless you have a better idea than that. I love that rule because, I mean, this would be an example, right? Oh, you don't like the he's a total dick line? Well, what's better than that? Yeah. What's going to make more of an impression than that? Yeah, if you can best that line, then uh, then, then let's hear it. I, I, I do like that rule as well. And uh, one more thing I want to touch on, Chris, is the car test. I'm sure we've talked about the car oh, test yeah. before. The ultimate test when you get your mix back, this is how people, I mean, at least probably half the time, maybe more than that, are going to be hearing your song. Just like probably a lot of people are hearing our podcast in the car. Yep. So you want to experience it, not through these $20,000 amazing studio monitors where probably everything's going to sound great. You want to hear it where the, the average Joe's going to be hearing it to see how they experience it. And if it sounds good through some crappy car stereo speakers, you know that it's a good mix. That's right. And uh, I'll tell you, I'd love for our supporting cast, our after party to be coming through your crappy car speakers. So for only $5 oh, yeah. a month, you can go to ChrisToMakes.com and join our supporting cast. It's like a Patreon where you'll get bonus episodes each week of the after party. That's right. Chris and I each week will uh, fill your heads with uh, laughter and facts and history and all kinds of great things. The after party at chrisdemakes.com. Help us out. We appreciate it. We love uh, doing this podcast. and We know a lot of you uh, love it as well. And if you haven't already, please give our Chris Demakes a Podcast Facebook group uh, a join. We'd love to have you in there. Over 5,000 active members. And Chris, you're still on Instagram, buddy, at Chris Fafalia. So make yeah. sure to give Chris a follow over there. I don't forget about you, Chris. I'm there. And Chris, don't forget... I know we're hitting people with a lot of stuff at the end of these episodes, but don't forget to go subscribe to the Chris to Make Some Podcast YouTube channel where I've been putting a lot of clips from the episodes. People want some video clips, and I like to give the people what they want. So the Chris to Make Some Podcast YouTube channel, you should go check it out. Maybe give it a little subscription. Absolutely. And give me a follow on Instagram too, at less than Chris D. And want to thank my old friend Carl Alvarez for sitting in the hot seat with us today. We'll catch you next week. Hey everybody, Satan here. I know what you're thinking. Jesus Christ, Satan has a podcast now too? No, no, that's not it. But I am here to tell you about a podcast, and it's one that's all about my favorite band, Punchline. Not the band you expected me to say, right? You probably figured I'd like Slayer, or maybe some backwards Beatles records or something. Those are okay. But you'll usually find me rocking out to fan-favorite punchline albums like Action or Lion while I'm torturing dead people for all of eternity. Punchline's podcast is called A Band Called Punchline, and it's super entertaining to listen to this documentary-style look back at the 25 years of my favorite band. Honestly, I'm really feeling like I'm getting to know these guys, and their story is amazing. I'm so ready for them to get down here. I have so many questions. I gotta give them credit for catching on to my whole 37 thing, too. There's a reason why they're my favorite band, and if you listen to their podcast, they might become yours, too. A band called Punchline is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out, and I'll see you all in hell. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 